Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is March 31st, 2016. Two days ago, the upper house passed the budget for next year, and immediately the prime minister held a press conference. I'm joined today by political analyst Michael Chuchek. Michael, welcome back. Welcome. It's great to be here. Tokyo is in bloom. It is Hanami season now, and the entire atmosphere in Japan is changing. Yes, we are finishing up the, well, by the time this is on, we'll be finished the fiscal year, and we start off with a new political season and a new budget. Right. Tomorrow's April 1st. The budget passed two days ago, and the prime minister pontificated about what he's going to be doing now with the budget behind us and moving into the spring. Well, he, he wanted to point out that there were some nice goodies for people in the budget, that there were things that w were positive developments, because let's be frank, he's not had a lot that's been positive to talk about in terms of finance and in terms of such things as the budget. We, we've had a lot of bad news. So mm -hmm. he wanted to emphasize there is good news. Good news, yes, Japan has the world's largest debt as regards to government debt, main government debt, but our budget this year, we're not putting out as much in the way of bonds as we were. Mm -hmm. So it's, 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 we've, we're, we're clawing back toward something approaching balance. That wasn't good news. He, they stuck in some stuff for the elderly, stuck in some stuff for working mothers. And he wanted to make sure that we all knew about this mm -hmm. and that this was all a part of their larger plan having to do with the new three arrows of the 100 million citizens being dynamically engaged in society and the economy. And mm -hmm. okay, great. That worked great, I think. You have said a mouthful. I mean, he, he spoke for some 10 minutes and you've encapsulated just part of that, but each, each parcel of that contains lots of background information. For example, childcare. It's actually, there's, there's something of a panic going on now with, with the criticism of mothers who can't find childcare services. Yeah, it's, it's been a very, very quick turnaround on the part of the government, which was sarcastic and cynical toward what was an anonymous blog post posted on some blog somewhere that someone wrote, there's a mother who, who in her closing line said, die Japan where women cannot get their ch children into childcare. Mm -hmm. And die Japan is, 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 you know, it's pretty dramatic language in Japanese. Perhaps in English it sounds kind of pathetic. But if the first reaction of the government was, there is no problem, this is just somebody mouthing off, no big deal. But it snowballed really quickly. In two quickly. weeks it, was, it became a huge issue. And then immediately the government has responded. Now it's responded in a way that's rather slimy. Mm -hmm. They said, okay, we're going to deal with this. We're going to increase the number of spots. And you say, okay, how? Oh, well, we're, what we're going to do is reduce the standards and lower the quality of the care by reducing the number of caregivers necessary to watch a certain number of kids. Mm -hmm. So that, in other words, the supervisory aspect will loosen up on that so that more kids can get in and be watched by fewer care workers. Right. You but say, great. <laughs> he also said we're going to raise the, the level of pay so it attracts people from other uh, walks of life. And you're thinking, well, that's not going to work because we have a population problem too. Yeah, we already have a, a very, very tight labor market. It is true. It, the, the first thing that should happen is that caregivers, whether it's for child care or elder care, their salaries must be raised. They are 
rock bottom salaries. Mm-hmm. And there are hundreds of thousands of folks who do have the certification, who nevertheless do not take part either in elder care or child care because the salaries are just abysmally low. Right. That would help. And the government certainly can do things about that in terms, basically it, it, it has, it, it's basically the biggest customer necessarily. Now, the whole child care story is, is really hard to deal with because you, you feel sympathy for the families that cannot get child care, but they're geographically quite limited. Mm-hmm. It's in Okinawa Prefecture, a little bit in Fukuoka Prefecture, definitely in Tokyo, Kanagawa, Chiba. But otherwise, throughout the country, there are actually open spaces. There are 24,000 children on the waiting list, on waiting lists all over the country. And yet, all over the country, there are over 160,000 unclaimed spaces. So it's it's a... It's not just that the government is insensitive and the mm. government is stupid and Japan is sexist. There's a distribution problem mm-hmm. and that it's actually really complicated. And that should have been the government's reaction instead of disdain. Yes. Well, you can tell that the prime minister is really challenged because not only did he allot a certain increase in the budget for elderly care and also for those people who are leaving their jobs so that they can take care of their elderly parents, but also child care, artificial insemination, which received a a big boost too. Mm -hmm. So you can see that there's a push here. We don't have enough people. Let's try and make more people. That's a 20-year gestation period, right? To get people that are born now into the workforce. And, um, you know, immigration is not really a, a favorite topic. He's, you know, the, the economy here is, is kind of teetering. Yeah, there's, there's the, in terms of the budget, there are two issues here. The, the fraction of the budget, the national budget, that goes toward social welfare spending is increasing dramatically each year mm-hmm. because of society's aging. Right. And that's, that, that has two parts in and of itself. People are living longer and there are fewer and fewer people being born. So when you look at the pie chart, the, the, the section that's involving social welfare is just expanding and expanding mm-hmm. spending, which means all other forms of discretionary spending are being compressed. Right. And even though this is the largest budget ever, nevertheless, the growth area was social spending. We're not, we saw a little bit of extra spending, maybe 1% in, in defense. Well, 1.5 in defense, which is, is pretty large. Which is, which is, but it's still, as, when you consider the, the, increases in defense that are occurring throughout the region, particularly China, at 10% per year, Japan's 1.5% increase is simply not Mm -hmm. commensurate with the security threats. Other aspects will have to be cut in order to accommodate this social spending. And right off the bat, one quarter of the national budget is simply to finance and service the debt. Mm-hmm. of the country. So if, if ever the inflation issue comes about and interest rates go up, that one quarter will actually expand too. So the, a person looking at the Japanese budget seriously from outside immediately freaks out. 230% larger than GDP that's, is the amount that's of right. it's Japan's it's, national debt. And the, the national debt, uh, it's, that's the gross debt, of course. It's not, if you zero out all the different things that parts of the government owe each other, mm-hmm. you're still in Italy, Belgium kind of levels of national debt, which is not great. Now, we had coming visit to visit us, Joseph Stiglitz and Paul Krugman, 
to tell us that don't worry about it, you guys can handle it, here's what you should do to keep the economy going. Mm -hmm. But in the Ministry of Finance, they're just looking at the budget and they, they're the ones who compile it and it gives them nightmares. Yeah. And there's good news, but it's if you ever look at the, the, the publications of the finance ministry, they're dire. Okay, so Mr. Abe put the best face on it he could in his, uh, his press conference. Now, what was really interesting about the press conference were the questions after the presentation. Right. Where he actually took on the two hot issues of the day. Right. The two biggest issues were, one, having to deal with the economy and, and the tax structure. One, not having to do with the economy at all. It's a political issue. That's right. The first is, will the government go forward in raising the consumption tax on April 1st, 2017, from 8% to 10%, a year, a year from tomorrow. A year from tomorrow. That, that tax is supposed to go in. He's actually promised that. And, he, and, the, and at this press conference, he was asked specifically, okay, you've delayed it once before. Are you going to delay it again? And he said, he set up criteria. I am going to raise it unless there is a tsunami or layman shock type major disaster that gives me a reason to not do so. Mm -hmm. Now, that raises the bar a lot higher than we ever thought it was. Right. We thought it was the economy is weak, can't take it, we'll have to forego it. We thought that's what, and that's what seemed the case in inviting Krugman and Stiglitz to Japan to lecture mm -hmm. the prime minister. And we actually, Paul Krugman did us all a great favor by actually giving us the entire transcript of his meeting so we know exactly the interplay between the two of them. It was mostly Krugman talking. But, you know, it, it really changed the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And the second thing that changed the atmosphere was the question of whether there's going to be a double election. Read my lips. What did he say? He said, I have not got this in my mind. Uh, not a iota. I'm not a bit. All right. And... Okay, that's not true. <laughs> Fundamentally, it's not true. Yes. In, in that, of course, he's thinking about it. He's been thinking about it since January because everybody talks about it. Unless he doesn't read any newspapers or watch any television, there's no way he could not have it that's in right. his mind. Well, I mean, we talk about it endlessly because it, it, it's a huge deal. It is a big deal. And it impacts also the initiation of the consumption tax or the withholding of that that decision. Yeah, everybody thinks that there is a simple two-step process. Mm -hmm. Delay the consumption tax, call a, a House of Representatives election. Right. Because the House of Representatives election is the way that the people can either affirm or, or contradict what the Prime Minister has done. You okay. know, show, show their disapproval for what he In has done. In a very short period of time, Michael, we will know whether the prime minister was playing a trick on us or not. He, he's not going to wait six or seven months before he does something and people are going to say, now, wait a minute, didn't you on, on March 29th say, I mean, if he's going to make a decision, he's going to make that decision within two months. That's right. He has to do it so that there's the, the necessary time to run a double election in July. There has to be a, about a month of preparation mm -hmm. time. There are, the actual number of days is actually somewhat less than that but you don't want to cut it too fine. Mm -hmm. Here on Tokyo on Fire, we are reading that. We are watching it, the next critical event, perhaps uh, the Hokkaido Five? Well, we're looking at the Hokkaido Five because 
in the case of that particular by-election, what we have is what should be an easy setup for the LDP to hold on to a seat. It was held for a very long time by Machimura Nobutaka, a faction leader, in fact, the leader of the faction with which Mr. Abe belongs. Now, he passed away, and his son-in-law is running for that seat. In addition, in order to guarantee that there is going to be enough of an electorate arriving at the polls, Mr. Abe invited to the Conte, one of the most scandal-ridden and notorious, if not the most notorious politician in Japanese politics, Suzuki Muneo. Right. And Suzuki promised that he would deliver the votes of his particular political party called Daichi, which has to do with, which is a Hokkaido regional party. He's from Hokkaido. He is ingrained in Hokkaido. He was raised out of Hokkaido. He, he is Hokkaido all the way to his bonds. Right. And he's promised that his followers will vote. Mm -hmm. for the LDP in that district election. If they're calling in those chips, if they're calling in those chips is still not enough and somehow they lose that election, then everyone says there is not going to be a House of Reps dissolution anytime. There's mm -hmm. not going to be a House of Reps election because if the LDP can't win there, then it would be insane to try to put it to a national vote. Right. I'm looking also, as the other trigger point, the declaration by the GPIF. Okay, so that's coming up in April? That should be coming up in April. They should have a report on how they're doing. Now, it's going to be tricky for them. They have a mandate to have a certain percentage of their assets in the stock market. Right. Now, the stock markets have taken a tumble. But the GPIF and other funds like it, because they have this percentage that they're supposed to cover, they have been buying stocks big time, mostly from foreigners who are trying to get out of the Japanese market, and filling in the hole inside their accounts. But they're going to have to declare in April what they lost on a share basis. And the prediction there is not looking very rosy. It, does, it, it? looks really bad. And if that's the case... And the media and the opposition can put a narrative together. Mm -hmm. Hey, Shinzo, where's our money? That's going to be terribly effective, not only in the House of Council's election, but it would be lethal in a House of Reps election. Right. And that would really change the dynamic in terms of his thinking. Okay. We've, as for people who are continuing to watch Tokyo on Fire, every week is a dynamic change. Every week something happens. So predictions that we make, we might change you know, in, in the next episode because... They're not predictions. We're looking at what's happening on the ground and we're trying to report how people are thinking. Mm -hmm. we, I mean, as analysts, we could, we could say what we feel, but that's not really worthwhile. What's, what's really worthwhile in what we're doing is trying to say, okay, here in Tokyo, because we're in it, right. This is what the conversation mm -hmm. is. Take it or leave it. Well, it is an item of great interest to us. Is there going to be a double election or not? Because that impacts other things too. There are a couple of things that are on the, on the schedule that potentially are bad news, but there are also some good things that are on the schedule. The G7 in um, Issei. And they're going to put on a really big show for that. And there is supposed to be some kind of announcement regarding the tax 
either positive or negative from Mr. Avi. Maybe a supplemental tax. No, no, this, the, the, the consumption tax. Okay, the, that they, decision. They, of course, no one has come on record and saying, yes, he's going to make a definite announcement before the summit, but everybody thinks that's what's mm -hmm. going to happen. And since this, the theme of the summit is going to be global sacrifice on behalf of the global markets and the global situation, which is in a pretty precarious position again. We're, we're falling toward yet again a recession globally, not on the scale of the Great Recession of 2008, but nevertheless, the, the pullback has been really, really tough. And Japan's GDP has taken a big hit because of it. If he's going to go forward with it, it's going to have to be in some kind of context with other countries reining in, in some way, their weaknesses or doing something for the international global environment that is quite dramatic. Okay, but as a PR event for the nation of Japan, for the Abe administration, this is really something to, to, to help lift, lift the people's spirits about being Japanese and being in the Japanese economy. Well, that they're certainly doing that by putting it at the very heart of the Japanese spiritual world, which is Ise, and the shrines there, to the, which are the imperial family's shrines. They are really put, putting a lot of emphasis on it in a way that most, let's, frank, let's be frank, most industrial countries, when, when they host the G7, it's a pain. And thousands of journalists come from around the world and congregate for a few days, uh, and they have nothing really to report. They're just there. It's just a big show. Here in Japan, however, for the Japanese government, it's a tremendously big deal, big deal. Mm -hmm. because they're not, it's not just the G7 summit itself. It's all the other side meetings. For example, the meeting in Hiroshima that, that of, of foreign ministers. We're going to have Secretary of State Kerry. Uh, I, I've heard that the foreign minister of France and also the, the uh, foreign commonwealth minister of England will all go to the cenotaph at Hiroshima, all with three nuclear powers, together as a part of that set of meetings. So there are meetings that have taken place among various levels of the government all over Japan. All of this process is really important to the Japanese mm -hmm. government. And whereas in most countries it's a pain, here it's seen as a privilege. Right. Prime Minister will be the host. The host nation will be Japan. And soon after that, the time to call an election of the lower house, if it's going to happen, will be very, very soon, but in any event, the closing of the upper house in preparation for the elections on perhaps July 10th. And as you said, Mr. Abe, whatever he does, can't say, oh, well, that was way in the past. When I said I wasn't going to raise the tax, that was way back when. When I said I wasn't going to have a double election, that was a long time ago. Water under the bridge. Things are different. If he tries that trick, he may have a very unpleasant reaction from the, the electorate. Politics is not a non-contact sport. You need to stay tuned. We're watching this if you're not. Please stay tuned. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. On Monday, the security legislation that was passed in the summer that caused such a big controversy went into effect. Michael, this is a new era for Japan, the pacifist nation. We now have, ostensibly, the right under the law to engage in collective self-defense. Now, up until Monday, the 
official interpretation of the government of Japan is has been that collective self-defense, while allowed under the UN Charter, is not something that Japan can do because it violates Article 9. Mm-hmm. And the constitutional ban had been in place. It had been reaffirmed by prime minister after prime minister. Mr. Abe comes along, decides things are going to change around here. He gets an advisory council. He points it. They tell him, you know, it's these things are constitutional. He takes the, the cabinet legislative bureau, which is functions as sort of a mini Supreme Court, and he pulls out the guy that's there and puts one of his own persons there, the first time ever that anyone from the outside had ever been appointed the head of that bureau. That guy amazingly says, you know, this plan that this group has made, it's constitutional. And suddenly the ball starts rolling. And it's been rolling ever since. And there are a lot of people who have been trying to stop it. Mm -hmm. We've had street demonstrations, the biggest ones in, in 20, 30 years. And we've had a constant, uh, just a, an avalanche. A creation of, of a new political movement. In, uh, in Japan, uh, uh, an avalanche of protest, actors, actresses, musicians, performances, all kinds of actions that we haven't seen for anything mm-hmm. in any way for so many decades. Suddenly trying to put the brakes on this process, which was basically decided on July the 1st of 2014, when the government, in a cabinet decision, said, okay, the council and the cabinet legislative bureau chief, they agree, this is constitutional, we, the cabinet, agree, bingo, it's done. Mm -hmm. But they had to put the legislation together. Right. This, I mean, railroad is not quite the proper term, but they did get it through the legislation, and the prime minister's approval rating suffered as a result right in the middle of August. That's right. They pushed to try to get it through by the end of the regular session in 2015, didn't do it. They extended the session longer than it had been, ever been extended so that this debate could go on. Mm-hmm. And yes, both the, the uh, prime ministers and the LDP's support ratings went down. The prime ministers dived. And they took the hit and went to the vote in September and got out of it. Now, that law that they passed, the, 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 the acts that they passed, have now gone into effect as of Monday. There were, again, protests that the night before, mm-hmm. up until midnight when it suddenly went into effect. Even after, even after it passed, the, the protests just continued. The protests have continued. The night before, the heads or the, the policy heads of all the opposition parties spoke at the rallies saying, you know, this anti-constitutional act cannot stand. Mm-hmm. This has violated the procedures that we have lived under for the last 70 years. This cannot go forward. But it's happened. Now, is it effectively changing the way Japan is? Well, I've, I've looked around on the streets. Not much has changed. Right. Well, something like that, really, it does take a, a long lead time. But I think also the Minister of Defense is being very, very careful about initiating anything, even on the peacekeeper front, so that we just keep it nice and calm, we don't get involved, give it a little bit of space and time. The budget was increased 1.5 on, on defense spending. That also has a little bit of time to, to trickle down. Getting soldiers ready for marine warfare, I mean, that's, that takes generations, doesn't it? Everything that they're going to be doing is going to require time, and it's going to require coordination 
with the United States. Mm -hmm. Now, in 2015, Japan and the United States signed a new set of security guidelines, which set off out very clearly the roles and obligations of both sides in regards to each other. Mm -hmm. And those were written with the idea that the security legislation would pass in September. Well, didn't he promise to the, the U.S. Congress, this will pass, I mean, six months before even went to a vote. That was a, a really bad set of sequencing events right there where you make the promise, then you do the guidelines, then you do the legislation that actually can make it happen. Generally, you don't do it in that order. Right. But that's the way it worked out within the legislative process here. Mm -hmm. It still got done. Okay. Now, with that situation, Mr. Abe and his government have done what is necessary in terms of changing the environment. Now it's up to the Ministry of Defense and the Self-Defense Forces to integrate themselves both with the United States Forces Japan, but also other potential allies in ASEAN or, or Australia or even with NATO. And then beyond that, if Japan's SDF are called to take part in peacekeeping operations like they're doing in the South Sudan right now, right. that they will be able to respond to calls for help. That's basically what the entire thing is about. It's that up until now, Japanese forces, no matter where they've been serving, whether it's in Japan proper or overseas on peacekeeping operations, do not have the capacity, do not have the permission to respond to a call for help from somebody else. Mm -hmm. They just don't have it. And even when they tried, as they tried in the case of the South Sudan mission, where the, uh, the South Korean mission was under stress and had run out of bullets and they were facing guerrillas coming toward them, Japan sent a consensus uh, from their base, where they were in a peaceful place, sent a consignment of ammunition and the South Koreans wouldn't touch it. And they said they waited for their own shipment to come from Seoul before, and then they sent back uh, the, the consignment from, from Japan. That kind of stuff will not happen anymore mm -hmm. because Japan will be fully integrated into the entire system. But that's going to take time. Right. Well, you would think that, I mean, the, the prime minister is not hell-bent on changing the constitution, but it sure seems like if he was given the wherewithal, he kind of would make that his top priority, which... I, I think you would agree, it scares people to allow the LDP to have two-thirds in the lower house, two-thirds in the upper house, because it's carte blanche after that. And to see the prime minister take kind of a bullheaded approach with the security legislation, with the, with the secrecy law, with, um, you know, pouring a lot of cold water on, on dissidents and, and newscasters who are carrying a, a different view of what the, the stated government policy is, it really does cause one to be a little bit careful about how power is distributed here. Well, that's whether that's going to make any difference in the election that's coming up in July is a big question. Foreign policy issues or even constitutional issues are really secondary to voters. Mm -hmm. Voters are really concerned about their pocketbooks. If always when you look at a political poll asking what is it the government needs to do, number one on that list is reinforce and fully fund the pension system. Gosh, you know, who would have ever thought right. that they would care about that? But they do. And they care about, the second of all, is usually uh, stimulating the economy. Mm -hmm. Foreign affairs, those things are way down on the list of major issues 
for voters. And this fight that has taken on has been very much a fight between elites. Mm -hmm. It's not a major voter ground level issue. Though, when you ask people, you know, do you have an opinion, they tend to have one, but nevertheless, whether that makes them act a certain way in the voting booth, no. Well, I think the prime minister has, has used a lot of political capital just in achieving those kind of goals, the security legislation, the, the secrecy law, that sort of thing that doesn't really trickle down to, to the normal population. But that political capital could have been used elsewhere. He dedicated it there, and there's, there's got to be a reason and a theory for that. And I think one of the reasons is the nuclear umbrella that's provided by the United States, there's probably a little bit of irritation between the United States and Japan. Japan enjoys the the benefit of that, and it, it, that has allowed it to engage its economy a little bit more aggressively. But also, I think it's, you know, the United States is getting a little bit tired of that. You hear it talked about in, in political commentary now in the United States. Well, the, Donald Trump is constantly saying that the, the South it's Koreans, the Japanese, they're all, we're, we're bankrolling their mm -hmm. security, and they're living, we allow them to do business in our country, blah, blah, blah. That, that line from the 1980s that we thought was dead is now alive mm -hmm. again. Now, that is the case. There, there is, ha you could have made a case for that in the past. It's really not the case now. And for people in East Asia, the issue mm -hmm. is, is really, yes, we need to do more, how much does the United States expect from us? You know, and if there's a President Trump, we'll have to be on our own. We don't even want to think about that possibility because that also involves J Japanese or South Korean nuclear forces. So that issue is way down the line. What they want to do now is think, okay, what can we do? Now, I personally fault the, the administration for the method that it used. Basically setting up as if at a bowling alley, setting up the pins and then in such a way that they're easy to knock down mm -hmm. for this revision of, of the interpretation of the Constitution. They set it all up for themselves and themselves alone. They didn't have a process that was fair and, mm -hmm. and open, given. But when you think about how difficult it is, in fact, up until now, it has been impossible to put together two-thirds majorities in both the House of Representatives and the House of Counselors, the first two steps to eventually amending the Constitution. Mr. Abe's you know, fiddle here, they're, they're shaving off on, on the rules. You say, okay, that's to deal with real security issues in, that Japan is facing. Mm -hmm. The rise of China, the increased technical capacities of the DPRK, these things have to be answered. Right. They, they, it's not simply something that you can just say, well, the U.S. is going to cover for us because the U.S. isn't going right. to cover for us. And if Mr. Trump's in, in the presidency, they're not even going to cover the things they've already promised. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? Do you still keep not doing anything until you have those two-thirds majorities? That would be irresponsible. That would be irresponsible. And I think as any responsible leader, you want to be able to empower your your, the defenses of your country to take care of your country. Maybe not project power too far away, but at least to protect your borders from invasion and, and that sort of thing. And those kinds of invasion forces, I mean, those are now uh, far beyond the, the seacoast. It's the, the 
capacities that Japan has taken on through this new legislation are still vastly smaller than what it would need in order to defend itself without the United States here. So that the U.S.-Japan relationship, at least on the Japanese side, is going to continue and in fact blossom. Mm -hmm. Whether the United States, under the regimes that are going to come in, which whichever it is in November of this year, is willing to be the partner that it has been, is the question. But on this side of the Pacific, yes, people are upset. Yes, people would like to have a constitutional process. But sometimes you're going to have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. Mm -hmm. In this case, they broke the eggs, and they broke them in a very limited way. If you read the, the legislation, it has some very tough criteria in terms of what are the circumstances when the self-defense forces can engage in collective self-defense. Mm -hmm. It's not a carte blanche. It's not, okay, it's okay, everything's okay now. No, you have to, to really demonstrate that there is a particular threat to Japan that is being answered by Japan participating in collective self-defense, which is, which is a criteria that other defense groups do not have to have. Mm -hmm. They do not have to, to justify their actions based on some very narrow criteria. You just talk about national interest, you talk about national power. Here, it's very limited. And yes, it was done in a way that the National Bar Association says is unconstitutional. A large number of Japan's constitutional scholars, I think the number is over 90%, have turned thumbs down on the government's actions. And no, this is not okay. Uh, at that point, they've really gone out on a limb to do something that probably is best for the country. Right. Well, unlike read my lips, no new taxes, probably this piece of legislation on collective self-defense will take a long time to stew. We won't see a lot of action. It'll be just gradually integrated into the national defense of, of the country and training soldiers and that sort of thing, integrating it with other allied forces. And we're going to be seeing that happening over a period of years. Mm -hmm. And it'll be, it'll go, it won't really go into effect until after Mr. Abe himself is gone. Mm -hmm. And no matter how you, you, you extend his tenure, this is a process of, of a decade or so to really mm -hmm. put this in. Because previous changes to the general outlines of the way that the Japanese defense forces work have taken about that amount of, amount of time before they've really been put into place. Mm -hmm. So... We're looking at a long process. We may see in the, in the summer the establishment of a two-thirds majority that would allow for constitutional revision, which would make all of this effort moot. Because if you can change the constitutional article and say that you know Japan has an army and Japan has defense needs and we, do, we renounce our, our renunciation of war as an instrument of policy, all this effort and all this Sturm und Drang that we've gone through will have been for nothing, but at least it's already done. Unlikely at this point, wouldn't you agree, two-thirds for the summer election of the upper house? I would say it's pretty much out of the question, but mm -hmm. there's still that tiny possibility. Step changes in Japan's security legislation and the dynamics of how Japan projects itself to the outside world and to the Japanese nation about what it means to be a Japanese. Please stay tuned. Welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. 
Two weeks ago, we addressed the issue of the Prime Minister reaching out to dynamically engage voters throughout Japanese society. So he is reaching out to single mothers, the elderly, people who are in the, uh, the rural areas who don't have a job, who are retired. He's made a couple of missteps, though, hasn't he, Michael? Well, we had in that one podcast or YouTube video, we talked about one specific, well, suggested appointment that had been made, which was of this very famous author, Otodake Hirotada, who is a handicapped person, a person who was born with neither arms nor legs, who toodles about on a wheelchair, but who has made a life for himself. And he it, wrote a bestseller. Wrote a bestseller. He is a, a, a well-known author and very much an, a, a positive symbol for people who are different in that way. Mm -hmm. And we on this program discussed, wow, this is really something that they're really pushing it in a serious way, this reaching out to otherwise marginalized populations, uh, marginalized people. For example, the appointment of Imai Eriko, the former singer from Speed, as a young mother with a child who has disabilities, that seemed as a, as a potential candidate. Grooming. Well, she's, she's on the candidate list mm -hmm. now. She's there. And so this seemed a logical step, especially since when you ask members of the Abe administration, what is this dynamically engaging the 100 million citizens? What does that mean? They now say it means being inclusive. Mm -hmm. in, to have a society that is able to take the strengths of every person and that no one is excluded. And that's what it looked like this was going to be the poster symbol of this effort looked like it was going to be otodake. Right. But one of the things that happened, and I'm, I'm cutting you off, I, I apologize, but, but one of the things that happened was now we're in this period of, of bunshun and, and shukanshi, checking out everybody and looking into every nook and cranny and under every rock and exposing things to damage the credibility of the prime minister. And with the case of Imai, they found that her live-in boyfriend was running what is basically a prostitution ring. It, it, that hasn't really stuck, though it's quite an amazing story in and of itself. Peter. And for once, it wasn't Shukan Bunshin, the weekly mm -hmm. Shukan Bunshin, but it was Shukan Shincho, its, its arch rival, which dumped the goods on Otodage. And what goods they were. An indescribable and unbelievable story mm -hmm. that this person who has lived in the public limelight for his entire life has been seen and been on television and talks and on radio. Inspirational and, and, speaker. And, and is interviewed all the time, had a backstory that was absolutely flabbergasting. So the magazine goes in, they send some investigative reporters, they dig it out, they present it to him, we're going to publish this unless you publish a re retraction or you contribute in, in providing us news of this story. And what happens is they publish. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, they publish it, and it's about extramarital affairs. It's about five mistresses, according to these count. And rather than denying any, Otodake admits to it and gets, somehow gets his wife, his long-suffering wife, to say that it was her fault. End of his candidacy. I the, guess so. The LDP immediately just said, this was, this was an idea. Somebody floated it. Whoever thought that we were never actually being serious, well, this is something that 
whatever. Next story, please. Yes. Well, we talk about this sort of thing, not because it's, I mean, it is interesting to talk about. It is a kind of a microcosm of looking at Japanese society and the things that can happen. But here in, in, in politics, there seems to be a biorhythm when these things are really at their peak. And this is the period that we're in right now. We're, it's ever since the breaking of the Amari Akira story, yes. the government has ha been fighting what has been a losing, retreating battle yep. against the weekly magazines. A fight that it thought it had won back in the 1980s, mm -hmm. that they were no longer the force that decided how the people saw politicians. But now, while we don't see the, the real effects yet in the, the public opinion polls having to do with support levels for the LDP, a constant stream, a constant avalanche of these stories coming out one week after another mm -hmm. from the magazines that had been so, you know, they've been basically involved in entertainment scandals and things like that. For them to really grab the political microphone sure. and say, hello, this is the LDP as it really is, that is something that we have to talk about. Right. Because the LDP, we're, we're, for me, I'm saying, oh my gosh, it's the old LDP that we used to right. know. The one that got so hated by the people, they eventually, despite all of their advantages in money, in in gerrymandered districts, pork in, barrel in, in, pork barrel politics, despite all those advantages, managed to get wiped out in two thousand nine. Bad suits, everything that seemed to have been buried in the first few mm -hmm. years of the Abe administration, but since. The beginning of this year, we've been seeing a lot of the old style LDP. Well, it seems like these kinds of stories have to trickle out somewhere. And apparently the prime minister understands that too, as does Mr. Suga. So they put a clamp on it and they have this, this secrecy legislation now where they can actually implement their will to people who are supposed to be telling the, you know, through newspapers and radio programs and television, what the news is and what's going on. And it seems like the Prime Minister likes to have a little bit more of a hand in that than normal dom uh, a normal democracy allows a leader to have. So probably this shukanshi um, industry is seeing an opportunity there. And yes, it was not not a trashy sort of thing. I mean, respectable people read the shukanshi because it, it has good information, very timely and richly detailed, and it seems like it is coming to the fore now. Well, you see. I disagree in terms of the trashiness. I think it went through a significantly trashy period where from about the late 1980s on, television took up more and more of the political space. Mm -hmm. And it could report a lot of the juicy stories that were previously handled only by the shukanshi because the newspapers won't touch scandal. Mm -hmm. they, they, they'll put it on the last page the what's called the shakai page the society page but they won't put it on the front and they won't put it in the first few pages that's always been clean and it still probably is if you if you go to the newspapers today they probably say what's even cleaner now but television with the wide shows the the long format news that we'd have from 4 30 to 9 a.m they got to fill that airtime, and they filled it during the, the 1990s and during the millennium with scandal. And, and wackiness, and a lot wacky, of stuff. Wackiness, and, but also extremely anti-government critical material. Mm -hmm. That has co collapsed. That's you just don't see that anymore. But 
That doesn't mean that scandal reporting isn't important, and it's certainly in this political season building up to the House of Counsel's election, it has really changed the atmosphere, even though it may not have changed the electorate entirely. So why has it changed in the, the popular press and in, in the newspapers and on television? How come people who want to know what's really going on underneath the carpet, they have to go to the shu kanshi rather than to have it in the normal press? Well, in this case, it's simply that the normal press is, is very much a career enterprise. And a lot of times they're very closely allied either with the political parties or with individual politicians. Mm -hmm. We have famously condemned by foreign news organizations the Kisha clubs, right. the dedicated offices inside political parties or ministries where all of the members of the Japanese domestic media have their representatives right. and they live together with the bureaucrats or the politicians 24-7 mm -hmm. and are constantly in trying to get juicy bits of information from them, and they share it among themselves. They don't share it with the outside world. And it's a nice, cozy relationship. That, that kind of self-censorship, you know, you don't want to ruin that relationship. Sure. You don't want to say all that you know. Mm -hmm. That suppresses the ability of the regular mainstream press to talk about scandalous material, to talk about embarrassing material. Even beyond the new security legislation, which has put on a whole new layer of suppression on the mainstream media. That has left open the possibility for the marginalized media mm -hmm. to pop up with these stories. And in this case, this broad narrative of the party and of Mr. Abe, this idea of dynamically engaging the entire populace is falling apart. Mm -hmm. it's, it's looking really pathetic. And that's not good for the prime minister because he doesn't really have anything else. Right. Well, they could still dynamically engage, but it just seems like their selection set is a little bit off kilter. Maybe they haven't run. Or, or, or simply there's no, there no, is none. no right. selection at all. It's just everybody come on in. Well, the House of the House of Counselors also is kind of a collection of very famous nationally recognized sports figures, movie stars, singers, that sort of thing, author. Right. And that you are correct in that regard. But you know, you have to have some kind of vetting process, and they simply blew it on the vetting process. And that's not the only place where they're blowing it. Sure. Isn't this somewhat representative of what we deal with in Japan all the time? I mean, even with TEPCO, with the, the, um, the nuclear explosion that happened there, um, having studied what happened there, they said the regulators and the operator were in too much of a collusive uh, relationship. And that seems to permeate a lot of Japanese society. And that's why maybe the free press has been um, uh, recognized internationally in Japan as one of the lowest. It's not a free press. It's not a really, truly uh, operating uh, democracy. Well, that, I'm going to argue, I have a completely different view, but that's another entire okay. episode. Well, but in terms of what this particular issue the collusion that happens between mainstream media and the political parties and major politicians has opened up a space for the weeklies, mm -hmm. which for a long time were, were down. 
but they're back up and they are punching well above their weight. This is not over yet, is it? I mean, this is pretty dramatic. This is over for this week. For this week. Next this week, they have another edition coming out and it'll be full of some things that you would have never imagined. This will continue now for uh, uh, probably up until the election. Yeah, and we're going to be seeing a lot of backpedaling on the part of either the ruling party or indeed the Abe administration, suddenly under assault, where for the first two years they got a free ride. Mm -hmm. You can't study Japanese politics without studying the scandals that go on in the background too. Please stay tuned.